Hey, welcome to On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. You've tuned in to our inaugural podcast, and uh, we're calling this one Anatomy of a Pheasants Forever Land Acquisition. Our featured guest for this show is Aaron Sanquist. Aaron has been with the organization going on 16 years. He's uh, the Minnesota State Coordinator and a wildlife biologist. He's the quarterback for all land acquisitions here in the state of Minnesota. It's a little bit of a Minnesota-heavy uh, show, but you know, that's where Pheasants Forever was born. So that's where we're going to kick this one off. Uh, we're going to talk about um, 55,000 acres of land that Pheasants Forever has purchased just in the last 10 years, utilizing a really unique piece of legislation in the state called the Legacy Amendment. Um, these are acres that are open to you, the public land bird hunter all across the state of Minnesota. And this is a recipe we'd like to see uh, exported to all sorts of states out there in pheasant and quail country. So um, we'll also end the show with um, Aaron giving us a little bit of a forecast for the Minnesota pheasant hunting season. Like I said, he's a biologist and he lives here, so he's been able to watch the habitat conditions and weather through the year. So without further ado, episode one. On the Wing with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Enjoy. With me in studio or in the conference room we call the Quail Room is uh, Anthony Houck, our Director of Public Relations, who will be uh, hosting the episode uh, with me this morning. Uh, Jake Schiller, our trusty producer for all of 30 Seconds. And uh, Aaron Sandquist, our uh, state coordinator for the state of Minnesota. And uh, my name is Bob St. Pierre. I'm, uh, I've been with uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever 16 years, and I'll be steering the ship uh, out of the gates for the first podcast. On the wing, you may uh, recognize the name. It's been our, the title of our email newsletter, which Anthony's put together for better part of a decade, right? Probably a dozen years, yeah. Because you've been with us for 12 years. 12 years. So on the wing, you know, we, we, we came through a whole bunch of different name choices for this podcast. And, you know, we had a little uh, equity with that name. Um, and it also sort of speaks to what we want this podcast to be. Uh, real fun, informal, and educational conversation about all things Pheasants Forever and all things quail forever. Um, we're, you're going to hear um, you're going to hear from our biologists around the country. You're going to hear some stories at the uh, back of a tailgate after a hunt. Um, you're going to hear some some cooking talk. Uh, obviously, habitat and conservation talk. We'll get into the farm bill at, at different points. We're obviously going to talk about bird dogs. So if you think it's related to the uplands. We're going to talk about it on this podcast that uh, we're launching here to get everybody ready for the uh, upcoming 2018 hunting season, which as we sit here today is, you know, if you think about sharp tails and huns in, let's say, Montana, September 1, we're probably just a few weeks out, three weeks out, and I'll be there. Will you be there, Anthony? You'll be a little bit behind in North Dakota, won't you? I'll be the next week in North Dakota. That's an annual sharp tail hunt for me. 
Um, so seventh year in a row that I'll be there for that opener. I don't know about the, the opening opening week. I'll probably dove hunt the first day in Minnesota. Um, I got a few ideas, you know, thinking about maybe buzzing out to Montana. You don't really just buzz there 14 hours, <laughs> but maybe Wyoming. I don't know. Maybe we'll kind of weather dependent. Those early season hunts can be hot. So maybe I'll just check the forecast and see. But uh, on that note, I, I think you made a good point. It just, it just fits that title because it does on the wing does allow us to talk about sharp tails and sage grouse. And there's a lot of crossover that, uh, that, that pheasants forever habitat projects do. So it, it, it all just fits. That's kind of, yeah, how I great, about it. great point. Sage grouse were super involved in the sage grouse initiative, lesser prairie chicken initiative down, um, Kansas way. Uh, so on the wing opens us up to talk about all sorts of things that we're working on pheasants forever and quail forever. And, uh, you know, we're going to try to bring more personality, um, to the sort of the face and the brand of the organization by talking with our biologists, folks that, uh, uh, work in our grants department on land acquisitions or different, um, uh, you know, farm bill projects that we have out there. Um, so you're going to get to know not only the folks that work for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, but some of our members, um, and then folks that uh, are involved with um, everything related to hunting and habitat. Um, and we're going to bring that to you on a regular basis, uh, kicking off here um, preseason. So this first episode, um, um, my name, I don't even know if I said my name. You did. It. Did I? Okay, good. <laughs> uh, that's important, right? So so um, uh, I'm going to host this episode, and Anthony's uh, um, with me as the co-host, but you're going to hear a lot of different voices uh, from the organization throughout the, the course of this uh, podcast. Jake, as our producer, our trusty Google lookup guy, sitting next to us. Uh, say hi, Jake. Hello. <laughs> Excited to be here. Excited to be here. They Jake. call me the uh, jack of all trades, master of none, I guess. So here I am. Hey, Jay, you've been with us about um, probably a year. You're, you're kind of the short-termer in this uh, room at the moment. I am indeed. Coming up on years in uh, September now. And like many things at the Habitat organization – um, you were hired as a video production specialist, and today you're running a podcast. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, just it, yo. <laughs> so if you've seen videos on our website, Facebook page, or state meetings in the last uh, last 12 months, Jake's the guy behind the camera and uh, really up the ante for us uh, in, in terms of, of visual um, video offerings we have out online. And now we're, uh, we're going to bring you some golden tones over the w- airway. Well... We're going to bring you some airways we'll, <laughs> we'll, to be determined if they're golden tones. Uh, as I introduce, Anthony's been with us, uh, director of PR for, for 12 years, and uh, he is, you know, the owner of probably the most um, posted about uh, dogs on our Facebook page, <laughs> uh, Sprig and Smidge, the Cocker Spaniels. Um, give us the, uh, the Anthony Hauck life story in three minutes or 30 seconds or or you know however long is appropriate well from madison minnesota western minnesota that's uh um, claim to fame as it's the lutefisk capital (laughs) i still don't get it it's norwegian but uh it's also pretty good pheasant country uh so uh but i didn't have any uh 
I have a brother and he got all the mechanical inclination and I got none. So I was forced to go to the big city to find work and then, and then, uh, landed here at pheasants forever. But while I was living in an apartment, I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to get, uh, I got to get a dog that fits in this, you know, in this like 800 square foot living space. So I got an English Cocker Spaniel, which aren't super common, probably becoming more common. And now I have two of them, but that's, um, yeah, we, we post about them a lot and I, and, and probably more so than I, I do myself. I mean, I was at, uh, for, for our listeners, this game fair event is probably known in Minnesota and then the upper Midwest. It's kind of a European style game fair. And, uh, I was working that here recently and, um, uh, somebody came up and and uh i was talking about sprig my older cocker and she said oh sprig i know that dog <laughs> and i'm like well i'm the human that owns it <laughs> so yeah the the dogs are a little more renowned than i am but that's all right because they they do most of the work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they are fantastic dogs they, the the nickname of uh um english cockers are pocket rockets yes right and they are all of 18 pounds my my two combined are 44 pounds okay so that's uh that's not a lot of that's not a lot of transport weight but they get the they get the job done and uh they're and and they're here they're not here in this room right now but uh pheasants forever is a dog friendly office so in the last uh you know i got my older one seven years ago and uh now there's probably too many dogs here to count. <laughs> if, if we listen closely enough, we might hear some barking in the background. That is a really unique component of working here in the office. It, it is dog-friendly. Um, on any particular day, Anthony's two English Cockers are in the office. We have uh, German Short Hairs, a Brig- an American Brittany, a French Brittany, uh, all assortments of Labrador Retrievers, uh, a flat-coated Retriever, uh, Springer, uh, well, Springer's just retired. That was owned by Mark Herwig. What, what am I missing? There's, um, oh, wire hair, or, uh, pardon me, a Deutsch Drottar. Uh, I avoided that one. Full save. Uh, but there's, yeah, dog-friendly environment. And and a Newfoundland, which may not be an Upland dog, but we are, our web developer, Jason, owns a Newfoundland, and we might try to see if we can retrieve have it retrieve a goose <laughs> it's been said they can do that but or a bear or a bear <laughs> um all right so without further ado we'll get to our uh, our featured guest this uh this episode and as i mentioned earlier that's uh aaron sandquist our state coordinator for our home state if you didn't know minnesota is where pheasants forever was born Back in 1982, we have the most members of any state in the country in the state of Minnesota, um, and we've done the most number of habitat projects and land acquisi- acquisitions in the state of Minnesota, and that's really the impetus for uh, wanting to talk with um, Aaron Sanquist today. Land acquisitions, public lands are, um, you know, one of the most hotly 
talked about topics um, it, amongst hunters and anglers. You know, our, our friends at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers have done a tremendous job of elevating that issue. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about public lands, but we, we sort of think of ourselves at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and I think you coined the term, Anthony, as public lands creators. So because since 1982, we have purchased um, more, well, close to 200,000 acres uh, all over the country from Montana, Coffee Creek and Wolf Creek, uh, Iowa, Minnesota, um, Illinois, all over pheasant country. That, and those 200,000 acres are now part of um, WMAs or WPA systems open to public hunting. Um, so Aaron is the kind of the, the, the pointed guy here for the state of Minnesota. Um, we're going to talk dive in a little bit on, on land acquisitions. But before we get there, I have a trivia question for, for Aaron and Anthony. What do you, Anthony, Aaron, and I all have in common? I think I can answer that. All right. St. Cloud State you, Husky alumni. We all went to St. Cloud. Go Huskies! How about that? That's a... That's that's something you probably wouldn't expect. We all uh, matriculated from St. Cloud State University. Anthony was a uh, mass com uh, mass com degree, I believe. Correct. I I had a mass com degree, and I'm guessing you had a biology degree. Fish and Wildlife Management. Yes. Nice. So so there's a shout out to uh, Husky Hockey, new head coach, uh, national title. Here we come. Uh, let's transition. So you went to St. <laughs> Cloud State. Where'd you grow up, Aaron? I grew up in Delano, Minnesota, uh, just uh, west of the Twin Cities. And uh, at the time, it was a small town, uh, about 3,000 people, and graduated from Delano High School in 97. Uh, went off to college, and uh, and that's where all the magic started. <laughs> Are you talking about school or something else? I'll leave, we'll leave, yeah. we'll, we'll leave it there. This is PG, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's PG. All right, so um, all the magic started, and you, your first job was with Pheasants Forever out of school, wasn't it? Yeah, the first you know, official job that I had uh, right after college. I graduated in about 2002, in the spring of 2002, and, and uh, in August, or maybe late July, I noticed uh, a job posting for a position out of St. Cloud or Stearns County, and it was for, at that time, it, they weren't called farm bill biologists yet, but uh, um, that's essentially what half the job was, was working in the Stearns County USDA Service Center and promoting private land farm bill programs like CRP. And, and then the other part of the job was actually you got a tractor and, and a drill and some other equipment, and you were expected to also go out and, and plant some grass and manage some, some habitat for mostly private landowners at the time. And so I, uh, I gave Matt Holland a call because uh, he was the acting regional biologist at the time, and I had a great conversation with Matt, and I just remember thinking, and not to pick on Matt here a little bit, but I got off the phone with Matt, and he just sounded like he knew what was going on. You know, a great guy, and I was like, I want to be like Matt, you know. <laughs> and so uh, fast forward a couple of weeks, I ended up meeting at uh, in Plymouth at uh, Perkins, I believe it was, with Matt and uh, Rick Young, and had the first interview, and that went well and, and uh, got the job. And, and that was 2000 and Three, that was said? August of 2002. Oh, wow. So uh, for folks listening, um, we probably have roughly 270 employees total. Um, 200 of them are what we term today as farm bill biologists. And you would have been one of the first 
five farm bill biologists in the entire country. I would note that that's arguable, but I believe that I was the first farm bill biologist, <laughs> oh, really? okay. al although not by title. Okay. Uh, I was technically a habitat specialist, which is now a lot of the field work activity, but uh, I also perform that same function as today's farm bill biologist of, of working with landowners out of the USD Service Center. And all right, give us a quick snapshot of what you did working with landowners. What, you know, they're, they're called farm bill biologists, although that was predated you or post-dated you but what do you do day-to-day -day, um in your job well i you know get to the stearns county swc office there and and work with some great folks there and you know part of the approach was you know folks come in they, they know they want something uh, on their property they may not know what program fits them but they'd come in and just we'd talk through the, the situation of about their property and and what they're trying to accomplish and and maybe that would lead to a conservation program maybe it wouldn't um, but then the other half of my job would be you know let's target a township or let's target a certain area where there's a lot of folks that are eligible for a program that may not know and so that would include a lot of gis type work uh you know putting letters together and and sending the, in those days letters to landowners saying, hey, you may be eligible for a program here. Here's the approximate details of the program. If you're interested, give me a shout or, or come on in. And, you know, we, we've sort of made our name as an organization around CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program. Um, it, was that the majority of the uh, program that it was that it was CRP the primary program that you signed up landowners for or was it a whole slew of different things? Both, you know, C CRP was the, you know, the primary large block type habitat uh, program at, at the time and still is. Um, and then we had continuous CRP, which are like the filter strips, the farmed wetlands and, and those kinds of programs. At, at that time, you know, the safe practice or the back 40 pheasant practice uh, didn't exist mm. yet. But uh, um, so you kind of had a, a combination of both. You had the, the more s strategic or specific activities that targeted smaller but higher uh, highly erodible areas, or you had the big block type habitat and CRP to promote. So you went from working with private landowners on conservation programs, and then the next step in your career was as a regional rep with Pheasants Forever, right? Yes, yeah, so, and that came a little bit quicker than, than I maybe thought it would. So I'd only been around uh, just over a year in the capacity we just Oh, described. really? I, yeah. I thought you had been a farm bill biologist for a couple years. Nope. Uh, it was just over a year uh, when Matt Holland, uh, who was the regional biologist, uh, decided or, or was awarded, uh, earned the, the director of conservation program for Minnesota. And so the regional biologist uh, position was opened up, and so I threw my name in the hat and, and was successful in getting that, that in 2003. So it, it, our structure, uh, regional biologists, regional reps work with roughly 30 chapters in a state. In Minnesota, there's always been two because there's close to 75 chapters in the state. And you worked with chapters to, to do what? Yeah, so I mean, you kind of have to describe our model first. You know, our, our model of, uh, of chapters and, and the organization is, you know, these local chapters are, are generally defined by county and they work hard to fundraise locally and then they get to keep those fundraising profits to do local mission and, and have a positive impact in their community. So, so my job as a regional rep or regional biologist is to work with those chapters to not only help them fundraise successfully, but then also help them leverage those fundraising dollars uh, to, to do more good work on the, on the local level. So a great example of that is, you know, they may raise $10,000 at a banquet and say, hey, we want to protect some land. 
Well, my job was to go out and find other partners and, and other resources that I could help them turn that 10000 into, say, a hundred or $500,000 so we could go and literally buy a, a piece of land as a wildlife management area. Can you do that for my portfolio, <laughs> too? <laughs> I, like, I like that return, that ROI. It's not always that good. Uh, so did... Um so what struck you about being a regional rebel or what, what really um, gratified you? The people, the chapters. I mean, without a doubt, uh, I got to meet and, and still have friendships to this day with some of these chapter volunteers. And, and those folks are just the salt of the earth. And being able to, to go into a local county and, and just see the passion and those people that, you know, they're doing this all volunteer. And they're, they're not just spending an hour or two a week. I mean, some of these folks are, are given a lot of hours to this organization and are really passionate about what we do in our model. And just being able to be a part of that and help them succeed and see those projects from start to finish, that was definitely the most rewarding part of that job and, and why I did it for so long. So most um, most organizations that are like ours have that chapter model, right, where chap a group of volunteers get together, hold a banquet, raise some money, do some projects, do youth events. What um, I, I guess describe what makes a really succep- successful chapter structure. What you know when you, when you think about you know the the best chapters, what are some of the attributes that jump out to you? Well, um, they, they take advantage. You know, we empower chapters to spend their own money. So, so it's not like they have a fundraising banquet and then are done for the year. So we empower them to be engaged full-time year-round on whatever drives them locally for mission. And so the chapters that take that and go are the most successful ones. If you have some great projects uh, that you're accomplishing, you're fired up to do more, and you're also bringing other people in who saw those projects and say, hey, I want to be part of this. So, so that just continues to build that momentum as you're doing good things locally. Um, the second thing is, in my opinion, diversity. I mean, some of our best chapters day in and day out when I was a rep and, and to this day, have women, have other folks mm. that are part of it that see different things. You know, the worst thing we can do is all think the same way. And when you have different people, different viewpoints in a room trying to drive the chapter or the organization, that's where we're the, our biggest strength. Yeah, good point. Um, so I- your next step in your career um, went sort of hyper-focused, right, to, to land acquisition. So walk us through what happened after um, um, being a regional rep for a couple of years. Yeah, well, um, we went through some restructuring in the state and, and organizationally, and, and, and the concept of a state coordinator um, arose, and, and I don't know the exact uh, date that, that that came about. but So anyway, Minnesota developed and, and had a position open for as a state coordinator and someone who can kind of be the quarterback of a state and, and oversee all programs, um, but also, you know, in, in Minnesota especially, permanently protecting land uh, for the public, you know, or land acquisitions as we, we've been termed them, um, is a huge priority for our chapters in the organization. And so it was kind of just a natural fit. I had been working um, as, you know, in the regional biologist capacity, buying land for the last 12 years. And, and uh, this this uh, state coordinator position allowed me to kind of do that at the state level instead of just the regional level. So it w- I was really excited about it and, and was fortunate enough to get that position. If my memory serves, and Anthony, you might be able to help me. So this this happened after um, the legacy amendment, didn't it? Because uh, so in, it, for folks not in Minnesota, um, the legacy amendment was a, um, a constitutional amendment in the state to uh, uh, a fund for habitat, clean water, and the arts. 
and that was voted on in the 2008 election passed in the state of Minnesota by I believe 62 percent of the voters um, it was overwhelmingly passed it was um, higher voter um, response for that than even the presidential election that year and um, that created this fund of money to like I said protect habitat water and the arts and all of a sudden we put real competitive um, grants together and that funded these land acquisitions that necessitated having a guy like Aaron Sanquist in this position to quarterback. Am I remembering that mostly accurately? Yeah, that, that's pretty fair. Um, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> what did he get wrong? <laughs> so, you know, the, 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 the other things I would mention is, you know, that in 2008, yeah, the, the Clean Water Land Legacy Amendment was passed after years of, of work yeah, by, by a lot a of conservation partners um, to get it on the ballot. But once it got on the ballot, yeah, overwhelmingly supported by the taxpayers in a time of, of pretty tough times in the state, you know, mm. economically. Um, and, and Minnesotans spoke loud and clear. They said, we want to tax ourselves to protect the environment, you know, and and it means just over $300 million a year, you know, even though it's three-eighths of 1%. $300 million a year annual or $300 million a year for, for this whole amendment of which the fish and wildlife portion is just over a hundred million. And at the time, you know, pheasants forever had, was already very engaged in, in acquisitions and protecting land. And, you know, chapters had seen access to public land or access to, to hunting land erode and, and public land was the way to get additional acres uh, that folks could hunt. And so we were positioned perfectly as an organization to help, accelerate and that's the key word here is, is, is accelerate we already had our baseline of acquisition Lassard Sam's and the Outdoor Heritage Fund allows us to accelerate those goals that the DNR have the Fish and Wildlife sportsmen across Minnesota and we were just in a great position to help deliver the goals of the Outdoor Heritage Fund and the, and the people of Minnesota well, there's probably just a couple points of clarification just since we all don't live in Minnesota although it's a great state and I don't work for the tourism department but um you know, number one is there's just a couple states in addition to Minnesota that have some similar amendments, right? Like Missouri, is it Arkansas? Arkansas, yep. Um, I don't think they all function exactly the same, but the concept is similar, yep. right? And uh, Iowa could. They're kind of in their own 10-year battle. Yeah. Is that, is that I, accurate? Yeah, Iowa just yeah. Uh, has been passed. Um, the mechanism exists. But in order for it to be funded, the uh, con Congress in Iowa, the I Iowa House and Senate has to pass a tax increase. Um, and once a tax increase is passed, then there's a funding mechanism for the state. So that's Iowa. been kind of hanging stagnant for seven or eight years. Yeah, I, so I they think it get was that passed done. in 2010. Yeah. Um, next point of clarification, I think, is... Let's see. We got Iowa done. I'm thinking, oh, land acquisition. Mm. Like we just we don't we, we don't just buy land and own it too. I, I think that's yeah, probably that's just fair, fair to point point out. That's um, you know when 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 Pheasants Forever buys land or participate. I mean we we kind of do it administratively, but I mean just jump to the end. They end up as we we donate them to the DNR or the Fish and Wildlife Service or in like Iowa maybe a county conservation board, but they end up being held by um, you know, kind of a, a public, like an agency that, I mean, we own them as, as people, right? We own them, but they're just administered by a different like government agency. So 
in Minnesota, that's typically wildlife, state wildlife management areas um, across the upper Midwest. Some of them end up as uh, federal waterfall production areas. And then, like I said, Iowa has some kind of county owned land, but we, we don't we don't own land as pheasants forever. We're kind of a conduit to put it into the public trust. Yeah, agreed. Was that was that good, Aaron? We're vetting our work here. Can I clarify a clarification? <laughs> so I got like a C plus or what? No, you did a great job, and you know, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, <laughs> with the one caveat is, you know, not necessarily through Outdoor Heritage Fund, but we do own some pieces of land where it makes sense for pheasants forever to, own, to retain sure. the long term ownership. Uh, generally speaking, those are you know uh, donations of land, uh, but but we do have the ability to own some land where it makes sense. Just you know, that's yeah. not, we're not, we're not really set up infrastructure wise to do so on a large scale, but the partnership we have where, where we buy land with our state and federal partners and we'll restore the property while we own it for that year or two, pay taxes on it, all that kind of good stuff. And then we will convey it to the state or the federal government as a wildlife area or a waterfall production area down the road. So clarification on the clarification <laughs> on the clarification. No, you made a, a, an excellent point about, um, the legacy amendment accelerated our ability to do land acquisitions because if you roll time back, um, you know, we've been in the business of buying land for, uh, you know, decades, right? Pheasant Run One, which is the organization's very first land acquisition down in Worthington area, Nobles County, was, I believe, 1986, thereabouts. And um, now, I think, Nobles County has purchased, I think, 36 different land acquisitions. And in Nobles County, southwest um, Minnesota, pretty intensively farmed area, you can walk uh, contiguously 12 miles from land acquisition um, to WPA to WMA, um, walk 12 miles and never leave public ground. 12 miles that is very cool it's it's beyond cool it's unbelievable in a you know in in an age where you know every acre is is you know intensively whether it's farmed or you know urbanization or whatever the reason if you think about you know if you just look at google maps and look at southwest minnesota and a 12 mile contiguous area um a public hunting ground and you know, that the added component in, in the Worthington area is the wellhead protection, the water protection around that community. It's, it's, um, it's come to a point where land acquisition is a tool for the city of Worthington to protect the water supply in the town of Worthington to foster business growth, right? I mean, that we have a, we have a land acquisition called Worthington Wells that taps on to another land acquisition program that was built in 2003 um, as a result of Joe Dugan, a longtime Pheasants Forever employee's concept, which is called Build a Wildlife Area, where it engages uh, individuals, Pheasants Forever members, um, corporations, and, and government entities to throw in the money together and, again, accelerate, match those funds, and, and buy land and become public um, public ground for all of us so that's my little diatribe on the history of land equity what did i miss there no i thought that was great just to just to supplement and this will be important in a few it's minutes not a here. clarification yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not a clarification but yeah accelerate is, is a huge word because yeah. part of the constitutional language is we can't supplant 
existing efforts. And, th and that's critical, and that's, I think, part of the reason why the voters were so interested. This is going to be additive work to Minnesota, not replace existing budgets, existing work. So, so yeah, we're, we're doing all the acquisitions and protection and enhancement we've normally done, but we're accelerating and adding on to that because of the amendment. Another word that I, th I think you or two words that we talk about in pretty much every acquisition nowadays are multiple benefits. You know, we don't just buy land for wildlife habitat anymore. It, we buy land for wildlife habitat. We buy land for pollinators, for clean water. And that example in Worthington Wells is a great one. And we're, we're doing that and taking that model and putting it other places in southwest Minnesota where they also have water quality problems. So um, the days of just buying a piece of land for one reason you know, are over, and, and we're doing a lot the, of good work. The benefits were all always there. We're just talking about them <laughs> in, a, in a different right? way. Right, I mean, yeah. when, you did, when you did Pheasant Run 1 in 1986, like, there were surely water quality benefits and pollinators and birds and butterflies and, 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 and whatnot that, that benefited, benefited from that. We're just, we're just in an age where we have to, like, over-educate people about that because, you know um, – Everybody might, everybody might in this country might be a one-issue voter, but when it comes to habitat projects, you need a lot of partners to get them done. It, it's kind of weird, but you can't just – I mean, in, in an idyllic world, we'd just say, like, the wildlife is enough. You think it would be enough, but, I mean, and I know everything works together, but that's, that's the point is, like, you're getting money from clean water funds, from wildlife funds. And, it, you know, I think the other thing to point out is, you know, we're talking about this today, but it's – um, you know, there's only three states that do that. Iowa might be on the verge, but, you know, there are other states that are exploring this. I mean, that's, that's probably why it's pertinent is because Minnesota, and we have, a prob we have our problems here, don't get me wrong. We've lost a lot of CRP in this state like anywhere else um, in pheasant country. Uh, but that, that dedicated funding is something that other states are, I mean, North Dakota tried and failed. We'll hopefully try again. There's murmurs in South Dakota about it happening and, and probably elsewhere. And, and here in Minnesota, it's going to end in 15 years unless we renew it, right? I mean, it was a quarter century amendment. And so, you know, you hope that uh, you hope that that becomes just permanent, too, that it's not just a 25-year a deal that, uh, you know, it can go in perpetuity. So I think those are just a few things to point out. Like, Minnesota's great, but, you know, you hope that this can be a model that just can be replicated elsewhere. Cause what some of the things we talk about here, the, the only, the only reason they're not happening elsewhere is people just haven't decided to do them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'd love for my home state of Michigan or there, there's been rumblings of um, a similar amendment in Wisconsin. Gosh, I'd, it'd be awesome if some of these other States would pick up on, on this legacy amendment, this concept and, um, be able to create a, a revenue stream that not only creates public hunting opportunities, but like you said, uh, right at the beginning, you know, habitat for pollinators, water quality. I mean, there's so much, so many benefits that we, we sort of take for granted all of those natural resources in 2018 in today's society. We sort of look at our screen and not outside in the natural world and see all the amazing things that, uh, exist when you walk through a you know patch of prairie grass yeah and you guys both hit up the nail on the head here too and you know that's what we need to do better and we talk about this with our our team in minnesota every day is how do we tell our story better because what we used to call wildlife habitat is not only wildlife habitat mm -hmm. it's clean water it's, it's all these other things that are important to every single minnesotan whether whether or not you hunt 
you know um, so that's really a key and, and if we want to renew the the, uh, the legacy amendment and and bring it to other states I think all Minnesotans and all people need to understand that these benefits there's a lot of benefits to to our work at pheasants forever all right so we're we, we talked a lot about theory so let's let's jump into the reality of how <laughs> feels like we're back at St. Cloud State <laughs> huh? Huh, guys Oh, Did God, please no. Oh, God, Okay. No. <laughs> well, I, I, I do have to point out, I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but I think we I think we jump past an important point about St. Cloud State. Like, you mentioned hockey. Uh-huh. I think a lot of people associate that with hockey now, but, like, in 2002, or maybe when we were graduating, it had a much, much different perception. And for, for, those, uh, for those, those listeners at home, I guess, or on the road or wherever you're at, like, Probably sometime in the mid-90s, St. Cloud State was named, like, what, one of the top ten party schools in the country by Play, Play, Playboy magazine? I think Playboy named it number two. Number two. Uh, but, it, you know, it also – well, go ahead and finish well, your thought. Well, so <laughs> just, just – I have to point this out. I did graduate from St. Cloud State, but my first year of college, I went to the University of Minnesota Morris. And St. Cloud State uh, is in the state school system system here in Minnesota. But when I transferred from Morris, which um, is a small school, it was really close to my home. I, I, I just I didn't really want to be there, and I wanted to be with all my buddies in St. Cloud. And when I tra- and, and Morris was kind of called the Harvard of the Midwest. Some people have called it that. I don't think so, but anyways. <laughs> anyways. I'm calling BS to that. Well, that's fine. But anyways, when I told my grandma I was transferring, and all she knew was St. Cloud State was a party school. Like, the look on her face, the first time I ever disappointed my grandma, <laughs> I just felt so bad. But we're living proof that, you you know, you can make it out and succeed in the world. Yeah. So, yeah. I didn't even know they had a fish and wildlife program there. Do they still have that? I do not believe so. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, I just, I, I think that, uh, you know, that place has come a long ways from people like us getting ahead in the world. And, and just erasing that bad. I mean, <laughs> I hit the books there. That's what I did. I know you did, Bob. Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, and I'm sure Aaron did, too. And he's going to put it on display right now. <laughs> uh, all right. Take us through uh, how a land acquisition, you know, there, what, what was that uh, kids, kids show, How a Bill Becomes a Law? What was that? 321 Contact. Do you remember that? No, I'm the only one. <laughs> All right. Anyways, t- how how a piece of property becomes a, a public um, public WMA for us to hunt? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and this is really my passion, and so I'm I'm very fortunate to corner to, to work with this every single day. And I I want to just preface this by saying I might use the word I a lot, but really we have a great team in Minnesota um, and grant team here in in the, the national office that make these projects happen. So. It by no stretch of the imagination is just myself uh, here. I just get to talk about it and, and be the messenger. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of what happens is we have to find these projects first of all. And by now, you know, having having worked with acquisitions for so many years in, in Minnesota, we're we're kind of like a household name in a lot of ways in certain areas of the state. You know, we we primarily are acquiring and protecting land in the western part. You know, within the pheasant range of Minnesota. So a lot of folks, you know, whether they're an industry professional, like a realtor, or auctioneer, others, these folks know the kinds of projects that we want. We're very strategic in, in what lands we're interested in, and we have to say no way more than we say yes to even get 
to the project, hey, yes, we're interested. So these folks know the kinds of properties, so they come to us is, is one route. Uh, a lot of folks go to our chapters and and they say, hey, you know, we've been, we know what you do, we like what you do, and we want you to help us protect our land. How do we do that? So they come through our chapter network. Um, and then there's a lot of really, really cool stories where a landowner uh, or a family member, somebody knows about Pheasants Forever, and I just get a cold call, and they, they tell a really cool story about the land being in their, their family for hundreds of years. You know, they're really proud of maybe a century farm status. And, uh, and so we, we, t we talk through it and, and kind of just look and see, uh, you know, by GIS or by computer, you know, the kinds of prop property and, and what attributes it might have you know so we look at things like is it next or close to existing public land you know can we bu build a complex or a corridor in some way are there threatened or endangered species on the property or in near proximity what does the the restoration potential look like you know can we hold some water on the landscape which you know again solves some water quality issues um, but also helps with wildlife habitat you know is there a possibility for that what's the grassland restoration potential like or is the land maybe in crp and it, it's going to be expiring and and the, they can't get back into that program you know which is a whole nother conversation with the farm bill but you know is there a way that we can protect some grass that may not be grass in a couple of years without our help um, and then, you know, finally, seller expectations, you know, so what's the seller's timeline? What are their motivations? Um, what are their expectations of value, for example? You know, one of the big things with Pheasants Forever that I, I believe a lot of people don't understand is we can't just pick a number and say, hey, we really want this property. It's really important biologically. We're going to give you whatever you ask. We, we're limited to getting an appraisal, an independent appraisal, and paying no more than the fair market value. And often we're trying to leverage our dollars and stretch our dollars so we're not even paying fair market value for these properties. So making sure that, you know, that all fits is kind of the first step. Which, you know, just because I'm familiar with some acquisitions here in Minnesota, I mean, that's, let's just be frank, there's still, there's still a, a perception, uh, particularly in, in maybe the, in the ag community that, that uh, is a, a contention that Pheasants Forever and other organizations just outbid farmers for property. But that really wouldn't be true if we're, if we're paying appraised price. It's, it's not true in my mind, yes. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and I hear that occasionally from folks who, who don't appreciate our efforts, you know, and, and they're fairly few and far between, at least at my level to get to me. But you're absolutely right. You know, we're hiring an appraiser who is looking at comparable sales in that area that have already occurred to generate the fair market value of the property. So, you know, in my mind, I don't see how we could be driving up land values with that situation. You know, sometimes I'll get a call and say, well, in my opinion, this land isn't worth more than the county assessed value, which is different than fair market value, as we all know. Um, and so, you know, if that's their that's their opinion. That that certainly is their and that's what they're using to base that we're driving up land values because they just think the property is less than that. But is there a minimum size? I mean, that's one thing I think about is, you know, I'm familiar with some of our, uh, you know, the bigger projects. I mean, that's obviously what we talk about um, when we're trying to, you know, promote ourselves. I mean, there's. You know, I think our biggest project ever was like a 2,500-acre acquisition in Idaho. Um, we've had some big ones in Montana. And, and there's some big ones that are section-sized. You know, yeah, there's a giant one in Wisconsin. Right. You know, I mean, three 600 acres get, you know, th those half-section, uh, full-section-sized pieces. But, I mean, is there like a minimum that we have to meet to? Or there, do we do 40-acre 40, 40 acquisitions, 30-acre acquisitions? I mean, 
we'll do acquisitions as little as a couple acres and it, it's more okay. about quality over quantity um that's that's i have to clarify that a little bit is so generally speaking unless the property has some very unique attributes we're not going to go out and buy a 40 or an 80 that's by itself meaning that there's no other sure. public land around it or you know nothing in the area we're not going to create postage stamps if you will in the middle of a biological desert so um you know really any size will work as long as it's say adjacent to maybe an existing wma and has those other attributes that we already talked about um if we're if we're looking at maybe starting a brand new unit which you know we don't take lightly and, and don't do very often generally the minimum is it needs to be at least 160 acres if we're going to start from scratch so how just rough percentages how much of our land acquisition comes through a request from a government agency the dnr fed saying hey we want this property versus um a, a landowner calling us up and saying hey i I want to see a legacy happen and I want this, you know, what's driven by us uh, versus what's coming to us. I would say it's about 50, 50, you know, and that kind of goes back to the conversation about accelerating and, and why pheasants forever has taken such a lead role with the outdoor heritage fund is we have the, the state and federal agencies have a, a waiting list of great quality projects that have already kind of gotten through this initial review process and scored. Well, they're, they're an important strategic tract. And the problem is the state agency doesn't have the budget uh, to go out and acquire it. So, so they come to us and say, hey, we have this awesome property. We just can't get it within the seller's timeline, and we don't have the money. We have, it would be a five-year wait. Can you help us out? Well, that's accelerating mm -hmm. what we're trying to do in the state. So I'd say about half and half. And wh where, the, where do the chapters come into play in the land acquisition? Because some of it is their funding, right? And some of it is work that happens after land land acquisition comes to fruition yeah well you know and i may be biased towards chapters but they're really the start and the end of these projects right. you know so when pheasants forever is looking at, at protecting land you know we need to come up with a, a package you know it's not going to just be one type of funding we need to, you know as anthony mentioned we need to come up with a diverse funding package that that matches everybody because that's what everybody wants you know is to leverage your dollar and show that you know a, a certain amount of money is making a lot more money in, you know, from other sources so we go to the chapters you know we have them vet the project uh, just like we do and, and make sure they're supportive of that local project um, and then also talk to them about what the match requirements are and, and uh, you know get their buy-in right from the beginning um, from there you know then we can go to some more staff pheasants forever staff can do the appraisals the appraisal reviews you know the negotiations you know working with the sellers in, in those examples and uh, once we get a purchase agreement and, and a verbal agreement to sell, uh, then we, we transition back to the chapters and talk about restoration and management. So, you know, and a lot of times chapters have a big part to play in that too, in terms of what we're doing on the landscape, but maybe there's an old building site or an old home site that's no longer being used. Can we utilize the chapter volunteers to help get rid of some of that stuff? Are there old fences that are, are degraded and need to be pulled so a dog doesn't run into them, for example, when it becomes a WMA? How can we have the chapter help us with some of that on the ground work as well? And from the moment a, a call starts a land acquisition to the moment it goes into public hands, what's that timeline? I don't know if I want to say that. It, it's, it, well, it's, <laughs> it's a, a long, long time, time right? It, and that's, that's one of the first questions that when we do get a, a call uh, to a, from a landowner saying, hey, I want to sell my property, I want to protect my land and leave a legacy, it's not a quick process. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we are looking, let's just assume that we have the funding 
and and have gotten the project approved. So it's a project that we definitely want to make an offer on. Um, I would say it's three years from that point until it, it actually gets posted with the WMA uh, sign on average. Uh, that's a long time. Where does it go sideways? You know, from, from that first call, what kills most land acquisitions that die? Um, well, sometimes it's, you know, I'm the one or my, my team's the one who kills them. You know, we, we're getting pretty good at asking the right questions of landowners to try to ferret out those that aren't going to be a good fit for our, our system or our process, our timeline. Um, so I would say, you know, time, the amount of time it takes. And so I, I should maybe clarify this too. So from the time we start working on a project, the time the seller gets their money is probably six, six to 12 months. Mm. Um, and then the next two years is Pheasants Forever and Partners restoring the property into a shape that the Fish and Wildlife or the Minnesota DNR will accept as a WMA, their initial standards, and then it gets donated um, as a public area. So, you know, if, if that timeline isn't conducive, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, we get a lot of calls, hey, we need to sell this within the next month. And even though it may be a good property, there's just hardly ever a scenario where we can accommodate that. How many... So you said the DNR has a waiting list. Um, how how big is that waiting list? Is it two or is it two hundred? It's much closer to two hundred. Holy mackerel! Yeah, and and you know all the partners get together with the DNR, um, you know, several times a year and kind of go through this. And, and the DNR has a ranking process. So all the projects, whether it comes from Pheasants Forever or a different partner or our chapters, uh, anyone goes into the centralized database of the DNR, and then every twice a year they go through a process where they rank them by region and say okay we're gonna here's the top 45 that we've ranked out there may be 200 projects on the list but they only rank the top so many and then we kind of sit around a table just like this and say okay well we have a connection to this landowner you know do you maybe it's a connection to this landowner and, and we kind of just strategically go through the project and, and tr with the goal of trying to get as many of those projects done as we can so landowners obviously and i'm, I'm one hand, they might be looking to ha leave a legacy, right, and, and to have that land protected forever. Another hand, they might be looking for cash, right, to sell some property of value. Um, are they looking for tax benefits ever? Can can when they sell or can they donate a portion of their property and receive tax credit? What a great question! <laughs> can I blow your mind for a minute? Yes, pheasants forever to date has received over eight and a half million dollars of land value donations hmm. and so let me clarify what that means so you know we get a, an appraisal by an independent appraiser and let's say the property values or appraises at a million dollars if they choose to sell for any amount under that the number the difference is a land value donation and could have major tax implications to them you know and you have to work with their their local accountant or whatever to see how it would benefit their arrangement but I would say the exception is not getting a land value donation on our properties. And that's one of the really cool things about Pheasants Forever and about these landowners we work with is most of them want to do have leave some kind of legacy and are so interested and so committed to getting the land protected through Pheasants Forever that they're willing to give us a donation of land value, not only for tax purposes, but because that's their legacy. You know, this land, like I talked about earlier, this land may have been in their family for years or even century. And... They just want to make sure that it's protected, and they love the idea of protecting those wildlife habitat that is open to public access. Yeah. All right. So, not to dive into like saber metrics for habitat accomplishments, but give us the <laughs> some of the some of the numbers. What? 
how much land has Pheasants Forever um, created as public hunting opportunity in the state of Minnesota? Well, yeah, so 52,000 acres almost, uh, I'm rounding a little bit, uh, has been protected in the state since this organization has been created. Um, since 2009, which is the first year of the dedicated funding amendment, we've protected almost 32,000 acres. Mm -hmm. So you can really see, if you do the math and, and project, you know, how much acceleration has happened since the Outdoor Heritage Fund. I, I think one thing that's interesting is you're always trying to, like, put the measure of, like, your membership. Mm -hmm. I know that, like, you don't just join an organization like Pheasants Forever or Ducks Unlimited with, without wanting something out of it, right? I mean, you want pheasants, you want ducks, but, you know, you you talk about return on investment. It's like if we have 25,000 members in Minnesota, that's more than two acres per person to hunt. I mean, what's the value of two acres? I mean, just put it like, I mean, that could be 2,000 bucks, 1,000 bucks an acre, 3,000 bucks. I mean, it kind of depends, but I mean, that's not insignificant. Two acres per person. Now, I'd like to see that be like 10 per person. Well, we're I'm working seven. on that. We're well, we're on working on it. But I, my, my <laughs> point is that's, you know, this money doesn't just – and the, they're expensive projects, right, even even if it's conservation land. it's <laughs> This stuff isn't cheap in this part of the world, you know. And uh, I, I think that's that's a pretty incredible statistic when you're when people are – most of our members – I mean, we have a broad spectrum of supporters, but to pay 35 bucks and and, you know, just – I'm drawing a lot of lines here. No, but, that, but that's a good to, analogy, you know, third, If I pay 35 bucks and you're going to get me, at a minimum, two acres of hunting land and for everybody, and it's all open to me, that's pretty darn good. And then, you know, nationally, I mean, that 25% oh, of our acres have been opened here in Minnesota, but Iowa, we've done quite a few. I mean, it's 200,000, about 50,000 in Minnesota, 200,000 nationally. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that's incredible when – I love the public lands kind of movement that's developed. You know, I really do, but um, sometimes I worry that it's – I don't want it to be defined as strictly a Western thing. Right. It's far from it. I mean, in some respects, I think public land is even more important uh, here in, in the Midwest when it, you know, it is like you use the term postage stamp. I mean, that's how this country this, – this part of the world is broken up, you know, section by section, gravel roads, one square mile, and then it's parceled down even more from that. You know, you've got – half sections and quarter sections and 80s and 40s and it's mostly private land and so when you can open up those public pieces you know i i mean this isn't to diminish what's happening in the west with public lands either but um even in my like my I, i'm from lacaparl county that's where my hometown is i mean some people talk about like well that's great there's so much public land out there it's four <laughs> percent you know it's like four to five percent and they think that's a lot I mean, I think it's okay, but I'd like to see more. And in in some counties, um, you know, it's 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 one to two percent. I mean, that yeah. that's in public ownership. So if you can add acres for people that are supporting you, I mean, well, that's and, what they want. So another stat for you: I believe Iowa is ranked 49th on public lands. Yeah. Um, they have one percent of the land mass in the state of Iowa. So put that into context. Think about Rhode Island. Delaware, right? Connecticut, the size of those states. Iowa has less public land than those states. Iowa. Yeah. Like, and 
and Kansas is right th- right down there. Yeah, too. I, I mean they have a phenomenal walk-in program, right. and and that you know that'll probably be a conversation for a different time. You know, public access to those private lands, but you know they don't have a lot in state ownership either. And the and you know the thing that really separates that is there's the, the big distinction is that once it's once it's in a wildlife area or w waterfall production area, it's permanent. Mm-hmm. It's not presumably not going anywhere. I mean, I don't know where we'll be in 500 years, but I hope those areas are still there. Right. And they should be. Well, it also reminds me, you know, as a kid growing up in the 80s, I remember those television commercials about the rainforests of South America, the fastest disappearing ecosystems on the planet. Please send in your money today to protect them. You guys remember these? Oh, yeah. Right? The fastest disappearing ecosystem right now is America's grasslands, America's prairies. What does Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever do? Protect the prairies, protect the grasslands, which, you know, some of it is through permanent protection, right, land acquisition, and others uh, through the farm bill biologists and, and through conservation programs. So it's like, you know, if we can just narrow it down to like think about, you know, those grasslands disappearing from the landscape, and once they're gone – it's super hard to get them back and especially if they're native right <laughs> or they you know if, if they were original prairie and they're gone they're gone um it, it, that leads me to the question of prairies and you know the the habitat complexes that you're looking for in these land acquisitions you know we we there's an old pheasants forever brochure that probably dates back to you know, January of 82, right? That says the number one limiting factor for pheasants across the country is nesting cover, right? Like 98% of the country, nesting cover is the limiting factor. There's some, when you think about northern North Dakota, Montana, shelter, winter cover is part. Is that still true today that nesting cover is kind of the limiting factor? Is that evolved over time in our, from our belief system? Yeah, I mean, it's it's grass is still the the limiting factor, but I'd I'd clarify that nesting cover and brood rearing cover can be different. Um, you know, where a pheasant chooses to to create her nest and and lay on eggs is nesting cover. Where she needs to raise her young that hatch is a whole different thing. And so that's part of the thing is you know we need to work hard to not only have grass in the ground in the landscape, but it needs to be quality grass and. We talk about grass right now, but we've learned that grass isn't necessarily the best thing. We need a diverse mix of flowers, and we call them forbs often. And the, the more diversity you have in the grassland, the better survival you're going to have with chicks from a brood-rearing standpoint. So the idea being is when they're born, they don't have to go far and wide to find insects, which is their primary diet for their first several weeks. They have something right near the nest, and that's where they rear their brood, and they're, they're less exposed, they're less chance of being predated on. So... That's really what the message is so, and what we're looking so at. So they can be the same thing? That's the goal, yeah. Okay. What, what, what you don't want is a, fe- a pheasant to be hatched somewhere that there's no food, and then they have to leave to find food, which increases their chances of mortality. So in, in the messaging you've seen from Pheasants Forever in the last you know five, six years, that brood cover is also the exact same is what we term pollinator habitat, right? So Absolutely. I, 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 I clarify that for us a little bit. 
Yeah, so I mean, when we're looking at, at grass, we, we use the term grass restorations, but really, you know, the amount of grass in a, in a mix has gone down to, you know, often a pound or two or three, and we've ramped up the flower components. So you're talking the cone flowers, black-eyed Susans, there's just a host of other flowers. We may have 30 to 50 to 70 species of flowers that all bloom during different times, and that's another critical part is you, you have these three blooming periods across the summer. You, you probably folks that are in the pollinator world here now, well, you want as many flowers to bloom across all three of those as possible. You don't want them all to bloom early or all to bloom late. If you're looking at a comprehensive approach for pollinators and, and pheasant chicks and all the other things that we care about, you need to have flowers blooming the whole summer. And so that's what we're looking at when we're looking at good nesting cover that's also good brood rearing cover that's also good pollinator habitat. All right, so now the two other pieces that is that we talk nesting cover, we talk brood cover, food and shelter. What, are, what do we need on the landscape for those two elements? Well, in, in our part of the world, uh, winter cover can be a few different things, but primarily we're talking about cattail swamps. So we're talking about wetlands, um, wetland restoration. And, you know, a lot of the, the research from the DNR suggests that you need one core wintering area for every nine square miles of habitat or of land that you have. So nine square miles, you need one You need wintering? one. Yep. And, and it, it depends a little bit on how that lays. You know, for example, if that core wintering area is up in the northeast part of that nine square miles, you know, that you may need to be looking. But so it all depends on, on where you draw the lines, I should say. Okay. But yeah, if you have one, that's at least 10 acres. And, and the reason 10 acres is important is if it drifts full of snow and, and they can't get in or out, you know, it's kind of useless. Hmm. Uh, all right. So uh, what about food? What, a, what, a f what does a pheasant need on some of this public land? Well, a pheasant just needs access to food near the core wintering area. So, you know, there's there's several strategies, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure most of our, our hardcore supporters have heard that, you know, pheasants don't starve, or they rarely starve. What happens to pheasants is if they have to go a long distance from that core wintering area where they need to stay to survive, they get exposed to temperature, predators, etc. So what you really need is a good food source within a quarter mile of that core wintering area. And whether that is a food plot, put in by somebody or whether that's a field that that supplies enough food you know that that's the age-old question you know it gets down to the specific site so you know that's really what you need um, but if you want to grow the pheasant population you know the top consideration should be the, the nesting and brood rearing habitat so you bought this piece of property and then this is some of the time that you mentioned earlier that happens between the the seller gets the money right and then there's, in many cases, a two-year lag between when we own that piece of land and when it gets uh, handed over to the, pub to the public ownership. And that's the creation or the improvement of this piece of property with all these components, right? So, so you're doing prairie plantings, presumably prescribed burns. What happens on that property through that two-year time frame? That's highly variable by the by the project, but you know generally you know when we buy a property, it's some combination of the following. You know, it's it's some marginal farmland likely. Uh, there's some odd areas. Maybe they're in CRP. Maybe they're just odd areas that are never farmed for whatever reason. Um, and you know, and, and then so we look at those things, and you you kind of determine feasibility. So let's say you know maybe there's some drain tile. Uh, the farmer tried to tried to drain the property. It just wasn't working. Um, so 
maybe there's some wetlands that we can restore. Are they feasible? Are we going to be impacting the neighbors at all uh, with this wetland restoration? If the answer is yes, you know, we can't do it, or we could go have a conversation about them. And, you know, acquisition is just one tool of our toolbox. There's permanent easements, there's CRP, there's all kinds of different programs where we may go and say, hey, we just bought this land. Our, we're interested in restoring this huge wetland base, and it can be 20 acres if, if we can get your buy-in on this and oh here's some programs that would pay you to help restore your part of it or maybe we'll restore it and they just have to you know allow us to restore it on their property so we'll have those conversations and if it's feasible we're trying to restore basins wherever possible and and maybe this is just one cog in the wheel of hey we're going to buy this property now this landowner to the neighbor to the west has decided you know in five years it may be right for them to sell so we're just going to wait with that wetland restoration so we kind of do that review with our agency partners and the folks who are, are really good at restoring wetlands um, and then it's also a matter of okay well whatever can't be restored to a wetland what's the grassland restoration component there you know what do we what kind of mix? Is it a wet site? Is it a mesic site? Is it upland? You know, what do, what do we want to put on there for the best results? So it's those kinds of considerations. And, you know, the good news is, is all the while Pheasants Forever owns these properties, they're open to the public. Mm -hmm. So um, we pay taxes on them. And generally speaking, while we're coming up with this restoration plan, we're also farming them. Um, there's a lot of, of new chemicals on the market, you know, to try to control weeds that have gotten out of control and got resistant to Roundup. And so a lot of the properties we buy have an 18 or, or 18 month or two year chemical carryover, meaning that if we tried to plant flowers into the right away, mm. um, they Dang. wouldn't grow, you know, or, or they would have a, a poor success. So often we'll, we'll work with whoever was farming the property or, or, or talk to a neighbor to farm it what we consider the right way in terms of a site prep, you know, to get the soil into shape for the grassland and wetland restoration. So that's that's a big part of the year to two year lag is we may choose to farm it for a year or maybe even two depending on how the pro property was utilized before us just to get it in the shape that we need it so we can have a successful restoration how many properties are in process right now in in the state of minnesota boy i, I don't have an exact number but if i had to give you an estimate it would be 30 wow and so from uh, how, how many are going to pop up this fall out of that 30 um, well, that's kind of a fluid process. I mean, you think about it from a fall to fall standpoint, but I mean, we're continually doing it year by year mm -hmm. or throughout the year. And so, you know, every month we may designate one or two, uh, properties as WMAs, um, that have been conveyed to the state. They're ready to go and they're going to have a sign on them as a WMA. So if you looked at it from last hunting season to this hunting season, I would say there's about 4,200 acres of, in Minnesota that Pheasants Forever has restored and, conveyed to the state that are now going to be open to the public that weren't available as WMAs last year. They were open to hunting because we owned them, but, you know, they, they weren't official WMAs yet. And they will be on any public lands maps that you buy that are up to date. Yeah, and, and the website, the DNR website, they'll, they'll show up as public, publicly accessible properties. Should we give a little secret to some of our members right now? Sure. So some of our, our like more technologically advanced members have been using, like, I think it's Onyx hunt or onyx maps onyx so, maps, yep. so they've they figured out that while we own properties they're open to the public and so they've utilized those technological resources to figure out what properties we own but haven't been conveyed yet to the state and so we get calls all the time about 
about that from folks who are just wily enough to get out and make sure they get that first bird off a property that Pheasants Forever is on, which is pretty cool, yeah. you know, because, and we were, we were talking about outputs and acres acquired and all that stuff, but, you know, there's also the outcome side of things. Um, you know, you get that email from a father and son standing by one of our newly put in signs and say, yeah, my daughter just got her first rooster or we just got our first six point buck, you know, and the smile on that kid's face, you know, those are the things that really make a difference and really get myself jacked and our chapters jacked and everybody because that's what we're all here yeah. for, I think. So just to be clear or clarification, the word of the day is, <laughs> well, pheasant, well, Pheasants Forever owns those properties in the interim. Even though we own them, we still consider them public. Correct. Is that basically yep. it? Like, you find that on Onyx Maps, go for it. Yep. And and we should clarify that, you know, uh, there's been a survey completed. So if you want to know the specific boundaries, you know, you should call someone like myself who will, who will go through and even send you a map of, you know, the specific boundaries. But that parcel ID information is not always 100% accurate. So... Uh, we definitely don't want to be bad neighbors, and we definitely don't want anybody out there thinking that they can go wherever they want uh, with a vehicle or something like that. So always give us a shout, and we'll be happy to share the, the adequate information with you to make sure you can hunt safely and on the property that Pheasants Forever actually owns. Yeah, and that, that brings up another important clarification. If you're listening and you see those uh, orange habitat management or habitat cooperator signs with the Pheasants Forever logo, those aren't necessarily public properties. That, that, those signs just designate the fact that a landowner has worked with Pheasants Forever to do habitat work on their property. You, you can occasionally see them in conjunction with the WMA, but it, in order for it to be a public property that you can walk on and hunt, you gotta, you got to find yourself one of those yellow Minnesota WMA signs or uh, green and white federal uh, waterfall production sign the orange pheasants forever sign we get that question a lot doesn't necessarily mean public property um all right before we transition out of land acquisitions anything that i've, I've missed uh along the way that we should have uh, asked you about i don't think so <laughs> we talked seems <laughs> like we've been talking a lot we, all right so um we're going to Jump uh, <laughs> as the final segment of uh, of our inaugural podcast to um, a prognostication for the uh, upcoming Minnesota pheasant hunting season. You're a biologist. We've um, established that uh, early in the, yeah. the the interview. He, he used the word mesic. Yes, earlier, that which that, I think means dry or desert. Is that what we're talking about? No, it means in the middle. Oh, okay. <laughs> between, well, up, <laughs> between wet and up or wet and dry. Do you think I went to the Harvard of the Midwest or something? <laughs> yeah. I, um, all right, so, so you're a biologist, <laughs> and uh, you, you live here in Minnesota. You've seen the weather patterns. Uh, tell us what to expect once we lace up those boots on, what's our opener here in Minnesota, October 16th, thereabouts? Whatever that Jake, Saturday is. Jake, here you go, man. Look up uh, the Minnesota pheasant opener it's, for me. Wow, what a couple of hardcore hunters. Yeah, huh? I, <laughs> I got, well, I got Montana on the brain first. Yeah, that, I'll be, that's uh, fair. I'll be on a horseback in September 1 in Montana. Um, all right, but, but let's while Jake's looking up the opening day, um, tell us a little bit about what we'll find out there. Well, um, the best way I can describe it, I think it's going to be a very – varied success opener um you know we had a lot of different weather events and and things that happened throughout the pheasant range of minnesota 
at different times and you know if you go down and look in, in what we'd consider the core of the pheasant belt and on southwest minnesota you know you're talking counties like jackson cottonwood nobles um, those kinds of things they had tremendous rain um, and a lot of water a lot of flooding um, that likely destroyed a lot of pheasant nests at the, at the exact wrong time so um, you know down that way I think it's gonna be pretty dang tough you know um, you get up into the northern part of the pheasant range and there are some areas you know along that 94 corridor that I think missed some of those really bad rain events and and I think are gonna be okay you know again we're, we're kind of at the, the the low of the average you know as you compare it to the 2008s and, and sevens you know when the hunting was at 40 year we had 40 year highs in the population but uh, I think it's going to be very varied and, and you're going to have to do a lot of homework to find those pockets of good birds. Uh, the good news is, is, you know, the pheasant surveys are being completed right now and I'm hearing some pretty good reports from, you know, an individual report here and an individual report there um, saying, geez, it surpassed my expectations uh, by a lot. So a any um, most overlooked areas of the state of Minnesota from a bird? <laughs> this is a personal question. <laughs> <laughs> Bob would like to know. Well, I don't know if it's going to be overlooked this year, um, but, you know, that east central population, you know, you get north of the metro area and, you know, that's been considered grouse and woodcock habitat mm -hmm. forever. We have some really strong chapters up there. We have a lot of stable habitat. So it's not like the southwest where, you know, you rely on a big base of CRP programs that can come and go. And we have a lot of conservationists up in that area. And, you know, I think it was two years ago, it was one of the, the better areas, according to the pheasant surveys, the roadside counts. And so I think that was overlooked for quite a while, but I think a lot of folks are realizing, hey, just a short drive north instead of west uh, may, may allude to some pretty good pheasant hunting, but also then you have the chance of shooting a grouse or, or something else too at the same time. So the bad news there is I believe that they got quite a bit of rain mm -hmm. uh, over the summer as well. So, so I'm not sure what, how that'll look. If it's me, I drive the 94 corridor and, and just hunt my way west, you know, and, and one thing that I'm going to be doing is going using uh, online resources to try to figure out those townships that maybe got missed by two of those those rains in June um, that may have a really good local population, but, you know, overall the county may not show it, but uh, wherever we miss those those heavy rains in, June's, in June, we'll, uh, we'll be in good shape. All right, so uh, our, our Google expert, Jake, has, uh, <laughs> has, uh, is that an oxymoron, Google expert? <laughs> you might get in trouble with that one with Google, Google specialist. Can I, can I say that? <laughs> you, can, you just did. <laughs> um, let's see. We've got an opener in the state of Minnesota on October 13th. We should all have that uh, dedicated to memory, but I didn't. So uh, it is October 13th through January 1st of 19, and that's our uh, – pheasant season for Minnesotans. Uh, what else do we need to know heading into the season? There's a lot of additional public lands that have been created and, and you know I love to hear the stories about folks who, who went out and utilized one of a, a Pheasants Forever partnership projects and and had some success or maybe they didn't and you know we talked all about acquisitions mm -hmm. today but you know, Pheasants Forever doesn't just buy land. You know, we do a lot of habitat enhancement, uh, both on private land, but also public land. So, you know, we love to hear those stories of, hey, you went out and, and went pheasant hunting on this property, and you know what, it could use a little bit of enhancement or restoration. Let us know, because we have funds that uh, we want to dedicate towards that, and maybe we can make some WMAs better at the same time. 
So how do people reach you if they uh, they got a piece of property they want to find out if we're interested in purchasing it? They want to send you that photo of uh, mom and daughter with the successful pheasant uh, opening fo- uh, rooster. Uh, how do people connect with Aaron Sanquist? Well, by email, it's esanquist at pheasantsforever.org. You've got to spell your last name. S as in sand, A-N-D-Q-U-I-S-T. And for those... Uh, it's not important to my email, but my name is spelled a little bit different. Uh, my first name, it's E-R-A-N. For those of you trying to find me online, A-A-R-O-N is not going to get you there. So, <laughs> <laughs> E. Sandquist at pheasantsforever.org. Yep. Uh, Anthony, what did we miss? I've been over here on Onyx Maps the whole time <laughs> looking for those new properties. Well, you know, honestly, I mean, you bring that up, and it's like those, those are probably going to be good places mm-hmm. to check out as good as any. You know, it, but here, here's the thing. I, I won't say miss. I'll just add that. You know, I, I talked to a, a, a wide variance of like pheasant hunting output. I mean, you know, I talked to guys who make it out a couple times a year and they say there's no birds left in Minnesota. I mean, there'll be guys in Minnesota, in Minnesota that shoot. I mean, this isn't to brag on them. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to draw the, um, you know, well, maybe a little bit, but <laughs> They'll, they'll, there's guys that'll shoot 80, 100 pheasants a year in Minnesota this year in a down year, and and it's because of what they put into it. I mean, they look at the resources available, they scout, they have good dogs. Um, so uh, I I think it's just fair to point that out that you know I, nobody likes hearing about like a wide variance of hunting, but um, you might have to train yourself to drive. It sounds like north of the Twin Cities, and I know there's thousands of pheasant hunters here. It's Maybe this is the year you have to break from tradition, you know, not not drive every weekend out to, um, you know. You're just to, trying to throw us well, off the scent. We know you all, you, you head towards Marshall all the time. <laughs> well, hey, it's, 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 it's hard. It's to, not working. It's hard to break. Rank. Well, there's four. I, I, all right. I tried to throw you yeah. off. I can't do it. Anyways, that's that's my thought. I think uh, I think they'll, they'll if it's all it. it I kind of hate that term, you know, like, uh, or the, that phrase, like, well, for those willing to burn through boot leather, yeah. you know, you hear that it's kind of an old saw, but I mean, it's an old saw because there's an incredible amount of truth to it. And, uh, that's part of it. You just, and, and isn't it fun finding new spots? Yeah. I mean, that's really what I've come to crave is, uh, um, I love hunting the home turf as much as anybody, but that, that I, I find it incredibly rewarding to find new spots, areas that I've never been to, eating a cafe that, um, uh, you know, we were talking before we came on air about Regal, Minnesota, some, maybe some new potential acquisitions out there. Where's Regal? Mm -hmm. Look it up. (laughs) Look it up. Find a new place. Anyways, that's, that's enough for me. And just one other thing, you know, is to Anthony's point, you know, look for, for changes on those public lands, you know, as a bird hunter, if you want to maximize your chances of success, you need to find the early, at least in the early part of the season, that early succession habitat. You know, we enhanced uh, 3,600 acres of WMA and WP in the state last year. We talked about the 4,200 acres that is going to be new, uh, newly opened. Look for those parcels of land, you know, and if you see what you knew was an old broom field all these years, and now all of a sudden there's, there's flowers and weeds and all this other stuff in there, that's where the pheasants are. That, yeah. That's where they're going to be. And so maximize those that half day or whatever you have to hunt. Don't hunt the same old field that was good five years ago because in, in a pheasant's life, in a pheasant's perspective, that's a lifetime or more, three lifetimes. So you got to find that early <laughs> succession that that's where the birds want to be. 
Yeah, that's a great point, especially, you know, it's a little late now for this year, but if you drive around the countryside, you like to hunt in July and identify where all the flowers are, right? There are going to be birds on those pieces of acres, right, come October. There's insects, there's diversity of habitat, and there's going to be pheasants. So instead of burning the shoe leather, we're going to burn the tire rubber. There you go. Right? All right, so uh, we're going to close out um, your interview with an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> you like this? <laughs> so we've got, uh, we've got a carton of Easter eggs in front of us, and inside each of those Easter eggs is a random question. You're going to pull one of those eggs, pop it open, and read us the question that uh, um, is inside for you. And you're going to entrust me to pick out? One? Yeah, pick that pink one. That, There's that's a, a pink good, one in yeah, there? Yeah, there you go. Open it up. And read it out loud. <laughs> out, out, lo- out loud. <laughs> what if out this loud. doesn't even apply? What's the best nickname you have for your favorite hunting spot? Yeah, so there you go. You don't, you don't have to tell the entire world, you know, that you like to hunt XYZWMA. You, you have to have, like, a special name for your spots right can i quantify does it have to be a pheasant hunting spot oh you want to share your your uh, kansas archery bow spot go ahead okay well <laughs> for those that that don't know me i'm a very passionate bow hunter um and we have a uh, we hunt some land uh, in wright county I'll, I'll say that it's private land and this is just a, a very good spot i mean everything works okay so you can get in there without being detected you can get out without without being detected uh, there's a lot of mature deer in this area and, and there's nothing better than than getting a mature deer with the bow in my opinion um and so we have this stand that's just perfect and we call it the killer ridge because there's kind of a ridge in between the swamps and you, you know that come late october early november there's going to be a mature buck there and as long as you hunted it right and, and kind of stayed out of there for the first part you're, you're going to see some deer in just a matter of can you execute so killer ridge would be about the only nickname i can even think of uh for that's a hunting cool spot. And, and what's the uh the signature buck from killer ridge um <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> i think i've it's failed to execute on more more times than i than i've executed so um so Killer Ridge is just kind of a concept. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a tremendous interview up until the final, like, fun little component. It just epic fail, Aaron. Yeah, there, there's been some deer that I, I wish I could have had one more shot at. But uh, those are, that's that's what hunting's all about. It's not necessarily always killing, but it's the memory that you make, and uh, that's it'll always be in my mind is that. So. You thank you do, for thank you for pointing that out. You've got to do yours, Bob. Oh, my favorite name? Well, I've got, as you know, I've got tons of them. Um, favorite. Favorite, uh, <laughs> Timber Doodle Alley. Absolutely. You know exactly where Timber Doodle Alley is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, just a place in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan that absolutely sucks in the woodcock on the flight. Um, about, you can hit it right October 15th or thereabouts. Before pheasant season, though, maybe October 12th. Um, it's just one after another pointed, pointed timber doodle, and so timber doodle alley is my favorite name. Do you have one? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Just, he, Aaron talking about the deer made it jogged my memory when I was uh, when I was a, a youngster. I'll just I'll just say this: we had a, a, the, a 
a hay bale blind, and that's where I set up, and it became known as the Coffin Corner. <laughs> that was our deer hunting spot. But I have actually my favorite spot. It is public land. I just call it Spriggs Corner. You know, it, matter of fact, uh, I go there once a year. It's just this little. It's this little like 100 yard walk, and there's always a rooster there, mm. and Sprig always gets it. It's public land. I'd love to tell you where it is, but you'll have to figure it out for yourself. There's no sign. You'll just know it when you're there. Anthony drives <laughs> a uh, bronze-covered <laughs> Honda Pilot with pheasant plates. You can follow him. I got, I got too many stickers on it, too. I might have to, I'm going to be out there in the parking lot removing all my organization stickers. I've got to go clandestine here. But, yeah, that, that's my fa- – and it, it's three miles from where I grew up, so you can maybe uh, – well, That gives me enough information that I can get there. You could probably figure it out. If I see you there, we'll hunt together. How's that? I'm kind of thinking you should throw up a sign, you know, Spriggs Corner sign. You know, just do a challenge out to our members, and if anyone finds it, just send in that picture. Yeah. Just Hashtag that Spriggs spot. Corner. Yep. Yeah, it's my favorite. I'll be there. All right, folks, thank you very much for listening to uh, the inaugural On the Wing podcast from Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Aaron Sanquist, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about uh, land acquisitions process in, in the state of Minnesota. Uh, Jake Schiller for, uh, uh, what do we call this? Producing, for producing the inaugural podcast. Googling. And, and uh, Anthony Houck, thanks for uh, co-hosting with me and tell us all about Spriggs Corner. I'm Bob St. Pierre. We will be bringing you another podcast shortly. In the meantime, feel free to look us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. You know all the details. Find us there. Shoot us questions. Shoot us show suggestions. Uh, We'll be coming through the airwaves at you again shortly uh, with the next episode. Thanks much.